Enlightenment. It's a term bandied around commonly. You hear this in uh, spiritual talk and you hear this in political talk. You hear it about the enlightenment of Europe and it's so vague in people's heads. If you're a Buddhist practicing in the Theravada dimension, it has a very specific meaning. And it's very interesting to find that out because it really doesn't have very specific meanings in almost all other spiritual usage. And people, when they hear so-and-so's enlightened, there's an enlightened Sufi master, there's an enlightened uh, Catholic nun, there's an enlightened uh, Hindu swami. Uh, they they must be enlightened. Uh, oh, you mean they're just like the Buddhist. Uh, they're, they're enlightened. And so this is a, a bit of a travesty, actually. The misuse of this word, it's just a borrowed English word. And there are specific terms and conditions in Theravada Buddhism, the early Buddhist school, which define exactly what is meant by enlightenment. And uh, when people, sometimes people ask me, well, but so-and-so is enlightened. Can't they be enlightened too? <laughs> <laughs> they may be something, whatever they are, but if they don't fit the definition of, of this, then it's not what the Buddha is talking about. It's not what the classical definitions in the Theravada school are about. If you're, not, if you're not aware of what is being described here, then that's not what we're talking about. So one should know this formula. And there's a few different slight variations in the suttas, but the classical one is there are four stages of enlightenment. And the other structure that you should be aware of is what's called the ten fetters, because the ten fetters, <laughs> fetters meaning chains or um, uh, sort of ropes that are binding the person, that are preventing them from full liberation. These have to be cut away. They have to be eroded and eventually fall away in order for the person to be free. And so the stages of enlightenment are intimately related to the falling away of these bonds, these chains. The first stage of enlightenment is called Sotapanna in Pali, and uh, it is often translated as a stream enter. One enters the stream of the Eightfold Path. It's often spoken of as going upstream rather than downstream. Downstream is a, more or less going with the world, the tendencies, and most people actually decline. They flow downward rather than upward. It's just easier in life to go down than it is to go up. Up means almost a continuous effort. So Sotapanna is having entered the stream. There's also a simile which is called crossing the stream. The stream is what's between you and the far shore. Far shore represents Nibbana. This shore represents Samsara, the place that floods from time to time and wipes everything away. Safety is on the far shore. 
So these are some similes to use and keep in mind. And so the first stage of enlightenment, in brief, it's attainable by lay people and monastics. And at the time of the Buddha, the Buddha himself is proclaiming many thousands of people having attained this stage of Sotapanna, stream enter. What happens at that stage? It's a realization which occurs in a moment, in a more or less in a mind moment. And it alters who you are after that. You have a personality change. You have a different view of reality. It's new information that changes the way you look at things. It deactivates some strong tendencies, negative tendencies. Mostly anger and greed are reduced. The kind of strong impulses that push humans over the edge, which uh, that make them disregard ethical boundaries, actually. So in a rage, one can kill somebody. In a fit of greed, one can steal and do all kinds of acts that are considered beyond the bounds of appropriate behavior. Usually the law itself prevents these, but lots of people can't stay inside those boundaries. The realization that brings one into the stream enter weakens those tendencies. And this is one of the definitions if one has attained this first stage of enlightenment. One is no longer able to kill intentionally or steal intentionally. So this is a sense of respect and empathy for other living beings as awakened, a level of compassion and a sense of identification with others has awakened. So you see in a person who is sociopathic or psychopathic that they have no sense of empathy, no sense of identity with another person. They think only of themselves. Other people, other animals are something other than them and have no relationship to them. So they can do whatever they wish to them without any pangs of conscience because they don't see them as theirs or themselves. So this realization is an ethical transformation as well. But it's not merely a decision to follow some rules. It's a change of heart. It comes about by reflecting on what the Buddha is saying about the three characteristics, impermanence, insubstantiality, and unsatisfactoriness or suffering. When one reflects on these characteristics strongly, your whole motivation changes. In some ways, your worldly motivations are demotivated. You are now substantially running on a different type of vision and a different type of fuel. And the strong emotions, which are based on ignorance and naivety, are deactivated then. And three of the fetters, three of the bondages fall away. And one of them is a conviction 
strong conviction and usually an unquestioned conviction about the nature of yourself. Yourself as a real thing that persists in time, that travels through time unchanged, a sense of strong identity. Reflecting on the words of the Buddha, one looks into oneself and does not find anything corresponding to that. And so is disabused of that idea. And it's a very common idea throughout various religions and philosophies. It's just taken for granted. There is a true sense of identity which endures through time and under investigation it disappears. So this illusion of the self is seen through. And this is something that no longer can arise if full conviction of the self can no longer arise. However, there are tendencies and traces of this habit structure left. So one is not completely free of all of the secondary tendencies around the core mistaken belief about the nature of the self, or we could say the soul. This is a mistaken idea. It is overcome at Sotapanna. The other thing is that you suddenly realize that liberation is not achieved through any other means than through wisdom and introspection. This is sometimes referred to as the abandonment of attachment or belief in rites and rituals as a means to salvation. Sila Pada Paramasa, quite often translated as conviction about rites and rituals. The word sila in there is interesting. It's really about behavior, that certain kind of exterior types of behavior, even virtuous behavior, is the path to liberation or the highest path. All kinds of cultures you're told if you just go to church, if you're just baptized, if you just do this, if you just do that, then you will have salvation at the end. And this is uh, seen through as the not the means. The means are actually much deeper and it requires insight and intention. The mode and the path to liberation and not mere behavioral structures whether they take the form of of rituals or rites or even uh, ethical behavior. Ethical behavior is good, but it doesn't result in salvation. It's something that may serve as a foundation for it, but is not the intrinsic path. You're also now confident in the teachings of the Buddha because you've seen two things, which the Buddha is pointing to and directing you to, and you saw them yourself. And that's why doubt regarding the teachings, the essential teachings of the Buddha, the doubt regarding that has fallen away because you can see it yourself. You have looked through the microscope. You see, if you, you know, at some point in European history, there's a whole hidden world, the microscopic world. Now, once they invented these lenses and so forth, when you looked into it, oh my goodness, there are all kinds of beings that are present at the same time as we are, that we never knew about before. There are worlds within worlds at the microscopic level. The other metaphor might be to look through a telescope, and then you start to see that those twinkling stars are actually galaxies. You see the surface of the planets, etc. So 
once you've looked through it yourself, it's no longer a matter of faith. You are now, you have seen it yourself, and now you realize that there is such a reality. This has fallen away and transformed you. And this stage of enlightenment is, it's called enlightenment because it's irreversible. It has arrived with an intensity that is not going to fade on you. In spiritual practice, quite often, you do have moments of clarity, realizations, sweeping feelings of loving kindness and compassion, all kinds of luminous moments. And then a period of weeks, months, years go by, and you it leaves your system. You experience a reversal. So the intensity of the experience was not strong enough. The vision was not intense enough to be irreversible. So that's one of the definitions. Is it enlightenment? Well, is it reversible? If it's reversible, it's not enlightenment. If it's irreversible, it is enlightenment. You're in the stream. You're moving in that direction. The Sotapanna can still experience uh, anger and uh, desire. They quite often will still live in the household life. And... Under certain conditions, they can be provoked, but they will live within the ethical limits. The anger is not so strong that it will step over into murder. And uh, But they can experience depression and things like this. They're not quite free of these things, but they're bound for ultimate enlightenment. It's just a matter of time. And conventionally, the suttas say a maximum of seven lifetimes. It can take no longer than seven lifetimes. It may occur the next moment. You know, further stages of enlightenment may occur in the next 10 minutes. Or it may not occur in this life. One might have arrived at a plateau and remain in that plateau for for several lifetimes before moving on. So it's quite a variable stage in terms of how long the next stages take. One thing that might get in the way is just the distraction of the household life. Not enough time to practice, not enough time to reflect and to develop on what has been seen. You don't have time for that, so that would delay your progress. The second stage, no fetters fall away in the second stage. The second stage is Saka, Dagami, it's once returner. And what happens though is that the two of the fetters are drastically weakened. Anger and greed are weakened further. So you're now an entirely ethical being, and most of the time you are free from ill will and craving. You can still remain in the household life and taking care of family and business and so forth. You are intrinsically fairly light. Your interior emotions are quite light. You're not burdened with these negative emotions. But under direct provocation, it's possible for anger or greed to arise. It's still latent and it's weakened. It doesn't occur spontaneously. So you don't just fantasize into a rage or desire but you need to be provoked directly and you might get an anger response or a desire response. 
once returner means that a maximum of one life remains before the completion of the fourth stage of enlightenment. So this is uh, an advanced stage of practice. Some people go off to the holy life, to renounced life, the monastic life, at the first stage or the second stage, but it's not mandatory. It's not intrinsic to the experience, depending on the person's karmic situation. The third stage is called anagami, non-returner. It's a very exalted stage. At that point, anger and greed are now terminated. Those fetters are now terminated. So now you've eliminated five of the ten fetters. It's very high attainment, very pure. Even under provocation, anger does not arise. Even under provocation, desire does not arise. And uh, this is still possible to remain in the household life at Anagami. There's a few descriptions of stories. One of them is called Gatikara, the potter. He attained this Anagami. By the way, Anagami is also, you're basically intrinsically a, a monk or a nun at that point, whether you're living in the household life or not, you're by nature, celibate. You no longer have any um, sexual activity or desires. And even if you live in the household life, you're just divorced from the normal motivations of humans. Gatikara had both of his parents were aged and uh, blind, and uh, he could not leave to go off to the monastic life. They would depend on him for their existence. So he he remained as a potter and fed them and so forth without any entanglement or interest in life in general, in the worldly life. But most people would tend to drift to the monastic life at that point. There's no, there's no intrinsic value to the to worldly life to them. They're just not interested anymore. So there are five fetters remaining and they're very subtle. And several of them are just meditative types of attachments. There's still a pleasure and enjoyment in both the meditation in the first four jhanas and the arupa meditations, the formless meditations, still have a pleasure for the anagami. If they have any attachments, it's to the meditative experience itself. Very subtle and very refined pleasure but of a spiritual nature. And one thing is restlessness remains. It means that the the mind itself is not intrinsically still. It still moves by itself. It has a tendency to move. Now, let's say for the ordinary worldling, the person who is unenlightened, the mind has a tremendous tendency to move. In fact, hurricanes are there sometimes. You are blown down the street by the energies of your mind without the slightest control on your own part. It just comes up erupting. In the Sotapanna stage, strong things come up still. The second, the Sakadagami stage, there is less energy, but there's still 
energy there, and it moves by itself. The mind moves without willing it to. Even in the third stage, there is still a breeze blowing. From time to time, the leaves rustle in the wind. The mind moves around, thinks, goes to the past, to the future, wonders what's someplace, etc. That's a little movement of the mind. So that is called restlessness. It's not the kind of awkward, problematic emotion that people normally call restlessness. But it's still a subtle tendency of the mind to move. And there's still conceit. But that means there is a trace, a trace of the remaining sense of self. Now, people are a bit confused by this because wasn't it in the first stage of enlightenment that we saw through the nature of self? Sakaya ditti, the view of self as being overcome in the first stage of enlightenment. Why is there something still called conceit at the third stage? It's just an after effect, a trace. It doesn't have a lot of power to it, but it's still there. And therefore, there's something else intrinsically called ignorance. So what are you ignorant of in the third stage of enlightenment? You haven't completely eradicated the after effects, the afterglow of the illusion of self. But it's very, very weak. It's just a trace. Having cleaned, uh, you know, a shirt or something has fallen into, uh, has got some dirt on it and so forth, and you wash it, you wash all the dirt out, but there's this little trace of the smell of the dirt or something like this left. It's just the smell. That will leave eventually in the last stage. There won't even be the smell of self in there. The fourth stage is called Arahant, and it is the final stage. And the five fetters that the Anagami has, the attachment to meditative states, Rupa and Arupa, restlessness, conceit, and ignorance, all five of those all fall away in a single instant, and that is arahantship. And then one is truly deconditioned and unconditioned. And there are no future rebirths in any conceivable realm at that stage. And that is how you define the four stages of enlightenment in Theravada Buddhism. So it is very specific. And it's something that one should mull over again and again. What are these fetters, etc.? What's interesting is this attachment to jhana itself in the third stage. There is an attachment to jhana. Sometimes it's uh, said to be an attachment to rupa and arupa or form and formless realms. Attachment to, to those realms as some sort of form of birth into them. But actually manifests as a type of consciousness. It's your, the jhanic consciousness, which is still an attachment, which result in birth in those realms. So it's actually important because quite often in certain schools of Buddhism, you will have a kind of a warning away from jhana, deep states of samadhi. And one of the parts of the warning is that don't get attached to that. Don't get attached to the jhana because jhana is a very pleasurable experience. 
And uh, however, that's kind of strange advice because you're not going to be free of your attachment to jhana until arahantship. So it's not possible to be detached from these things if you're not an arahant. And of course, the instructions of the Buddha is that samadhi, the last factor of the Eightfold Path, which is the four jhanas, is a means to the end of the path. It is a means to liberation, even from the attachment to the jhanas itself. Jhanas are a means to an end of total liberation. By the way, jhana cannot tell you if you're enlightened or not. It's possible for an unenlightened person to attain the jhanas, samadhi. And even to the fourth stage, the Buddha himself, before he was enlightened, could enter into jhana and went into the fourth stage of the jhanas. And it's so if you're a sotapanna, can you check it out by asking yourself, well, can I enter the jhanas? Should that tell me if I'm a sotapanna? No. It's possible the sotapanna may not be able to access the jhanas sometimes. That's not a necessarily intrinsic feature of the first stage. Even in the second stage, it may not be available to the person all the time, but it's likely and possible that they will be able to access jhana. The third stage of enlightenment, uh, yes, you should be very easily able to access the jhanas and uh, to remain in them because there are no fetters impeding you. There's nothing between you and the jhanas. And in fact, you will have a tendency to always incline towards wanting to practice the jhanas. That's two of your fetters is that you incline to want to enter and remain in those the Arahant, can they enter jhana? Yes, they must enter jhana. Little side note, the there's another level of jhanas called the Arupa meditations. They're not really referred to as jhanas, but they're formless meditations. It's not necessary that the Arahant can attain those. It's not intrinsic to Arahantship that they can enter those. It is quite sensible that they can enter the first four jhanas and they should have access to it uh, fairly easily as well. So those are a brief sketch of what enlightenment is, the factors, the fetters that fall away, and the nature of each of these stages.